Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Marjorie Cohn, past president of the National Lawyers Guild, who examines the consequences of the Supreme Court's ruling overturning the 50-year-old federal protection for women's access to abortions. Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois, who assesses the dangerous agenda of the Supreme Court's majority of extremist justices likely to overturn settled law and established rights. And Dr. James Kahn, professor at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California, who discusses a new study which found that had a universal health care system been in place in the U.S. during the pandemic, More than 300,000 COVID deaths could have been prevented. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Protests erupted in cities across India in mid-June over the bulldozing of a prominent Muslim activist's house in the state of Uttar Pradesh. Authorities blamed the destruction of the home on protesters in Muslim neighborhoods who had earlier taken to the streets after spokespersons of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, insulted the Prophet Muhammad. Uttar Pradesh is run by a Hindu monk turned politician who has a track record of bulldozing homes of his foes. The demolished home belonged to civil society activist Javed Ahmad, who was linked to organizing a protest which turned violent. There is no law in India permitting the bulldozing of houses for alleged crimes, yet it happens regularly in states run by the BJP. Muslims have been targeted across India for the food they eat, the clothing they wear, and interreligious marriages. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have accused Modi's party of enabling hate speech against Muslims who comprise 14% of India's 1.4 billion people. Twelve prominent jurists, including a former Supreme Court judge, sent a letter to India's chief justice urging him to hold a hearing on the demolitions, calling them illegal and a form of collective extrajudicial punishment. For years, tech billionaire Peter Thiel served as a link between Silicon Valley and right-wing Republicans, including former President Donald Trump. Now, Thiel, an early investor in Facebook, and who's been on the company's board since 2005, has resigned. Thiel says he'll now focus on funding the campaigns of extremist Republicans like Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance, who attacks big tech and social media as too liberal. For years, Thiel had a front seat in crafting policy at Facebook, using his close friendship with CEO Mark Zuckerberg to create space for right-wing opinion. But the relationship started to fray as Facebook and other social media companies were pressured to monitor hate speech and disinformation on their platforms. Last year, Thiel attacked Facebook for supporting woke politicians and kicking former President Donald Trump off their platform. Thiel, a gay libertarian, received press attention after he endorsed Trump and spoke at the 2016 Republican National Convention. 
The Washington Post reports that during the Trump years, Thiel facilitated meetings between Zuckerberg and right-wing commentators like Tucker Carlson of Fox News. As the coronavirus pandemic held Americans hostage in their homes, the nation's private equity investors were trying to capitalize on the distressed New York City real estate market, the same cruelty that awakens after every financial crisis. Fred Lacau was a real estate investor at BlackRock during the 2008 financial crisis. He had bought up bad mortgages on the cheap, using government money, and then waited for those investments to appreciate. Thirteen years later, Lacau was a principal at a Manhattan investment firm called Greenbrook Partners that bought more than 50 Brooklyn apartment buildings. The firm was looking to turn a big profit by converting homes into upscale rentals as the pandemic boiled over. A group of angry Brooklyn tenants that had received eviction notices discovered that a major investor that had financed Greenbrook's purchase of the apartment buildings was the Texas Permanent School Fund, a $50 billion portfolio overseen by the state's Board of Education. While the tenants tried in vain to convince the Texas Fund to disinvest from the project that was evicting them, many tenants have refused to leave and are carrying on the fight today with help from local and national politicians and other allies. As Mother Jones magazine observes, everyday people suffer while a select world of financiers use an economic crash to acquire greater wealth. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Although a leaked copy of the draft Supreme Court ruling overturning the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision had been published in May, the official handing down of that decision on June 24th created a seismic shift in U.S. law, eliminating the right of American women to access safe legal abortions. The repeal of women's reproductive rights after 50 years will dramatically impact women in Republican-controlled states. 18 states have trigger laws or pre-existing bans that immediately outlaw all or nearly all abortions. 26 states in all are poised to ban abortions, affecting the lives of some 38 million women. Criminalizing abortion historically hasn't stopped people from seeking the procedure. Many poor women and women in communities of color without the means to travel to states where safe legal abortions are available will now be forced to seek reproductive health care in potentially dangerous underground networks. While the FDA has approved medications to safely induce abortions, many states are attempting to prohibit women from being prescribed or receiving such pharmaceutical drugs. Your reporter spoke with Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and past president of the National Lawyers Guild. Here she talks about the serious impact the Supreme Court's ruling will have on women nationwide, and what, if anything, President Biden and Congress can do now to reduce the harm of outlawing women's reproductive rights. What the Supreme Court has done effectively is to wrench the right to self-determination away from half of the U.S. population. I think there's no better way to put it. 
there are at least 10 states that effectively banned abortion as of Saturday night. Another five states are expected to enact what are called trigger laws limiting abortion in the coming period. And once these trigger laws take effect, um, patients in Texas, for example, will have to drive an average of 542 miles to reach the nearest clinic that performs abortions. Um, Patients in Louisiana will have to drive 666 miles um, one way, and in Mississippi, 495 miles. Uh, Missouri, in Missouri, um, State Representative Mary Coleman is trying to uh, keep pregnant people from leaving the state to get an abortion. There are so-called sanctuary states, like my state, I'm proud to say, California, um, which is setting up a support system for an influx of people seeking abortions from other states where it has been uh, ruled illegal or it will be uh, made illegal or banned. And these um, organizations are providing travel expenses, food, lodging, etc., for people seeking abortions, which I think is, uh, is, is, is great. Now, in Louisiana, Republicans are advancing legislation to allow prosecutors to charge abortion patients and providers with homicide. Um, Usually we see possibly doctors, aiders, and abettors, but not the people receiving the abortion themselves. And uh, the SB-8, which is on the books now in Texas, and this same right-wing majority of the Supreme Court allowed it to go into effect even before the court actually considered the merits of it. Um, It bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy when most people don't even know they're pregnant and sets up, basically deputizes private people to sue aiders and abettors or people who perform abortions. So that could be a doctor, a nurse, a clinic, an Uber driver, a relative. Um, And if they succeed in the lawsuit, they get $10,000 and attorney's fees. It's like a bounty uh, on the heads of um, these people that are called aiders and abettors. And I think we're going to see a proliferation of these really draconian laws banning or limiting abortion all over the country. This really is the handmaid's tale come to life here, where we're going to have people spying on each other to get this $10,000 bounty in possibly other states. I've heard nightmarish scenarios of women who keep uh, track of their menstrual cycles on a phone app where this information, this digital information, could be subpoenaed by a court in a state that bans abortion to target women who they suspect may have had an abortion out of state at a certain period of time. You also have investigations that are going on or could go on in the future where women miscarry, and there are doubts about the miscarriage, whether it was induced or natural. You want to speak to some of these uh, horrible scenarios of a police state targeting women. Yes, um, Scott, on the Internet, uh, people can track uh, what websites you visit if people are looking for places to, uh, to receive an abortion, if their state outlaws it or restricts it severely. Um, they can, that can be traced, and if there are states that criminalize uh, um, 
people who travel to other states, like Miss Missouri is trying to do, um, that could be used by prosecutors. They could subpoena those um, internet records. And another name for miscarriage is spontaneous abortion. Right. And the procedure for dealing with a miscarriage, especially in the later stages of pregnancy, is identical to uh, to dealing with abortion and uh, to, to performing an abortion. And so um, I can see now uh, allegations leveled against people who miscarry uh, and perhaps charges being brought against them or doctors or other people who aid in dealing with the medical issues surrounding miscarriage um, being accused of illegal abortion. I mean, the, the scenarios are frightening and endless. Could you sum up what's the most important thing that President Biden and Congress can do right now in the short run to limit the damage here from this Supreme Court decision? Well, if the filibuster were lifted, um, then they could pass a federal law that would enshrine the right to abortion. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like that's going to happen because of Manchin and Cinema, so-called Democrats in name only, who don't believe in lifting the filibuster, although they claim to be pro-choice, at least Manchin does. Um, Biden should ask his uh, Justice Department to scour um, all regulations that could be used to protect the right to abortion uh, and, uh, you know, prevent the uh, th- this really avalanche of, uh, of tragedy that is going to befall us uh, state by state. Um, but there are things, I'm sure, that they could do um, at the federal level that would mitigate some of that damage. That was Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and past president of the National Lawyers Guild. Find a link to her recent article titled Self-Determination Has Been Wrenched Away from Half the U.S. Population and Related Analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Justice Samuel Alito, in his opinion overturning the 1973 Roe v. Wade federal protection of women's access to abortion, based his reasoning on the concept of originalism. He said that abortion was not deeply rooted in this nation's history, relying on a reading of state laws on the books in 1868, when the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment was adopted, that protects due process rights. The extremist conservative majority's recent ruling in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin case that overturned a 1911 New York State law restricting the carrying of guns in public also relied on an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. According to the Wake Forest Law Review, originalism is a concept regarding the interpretation of the Constitution that asserts that all statements in the Constitution must be interpreted based on the original understanding at the time it was adopted. This notion stands in contrast to the concept of the living Constitution, which asserts that the Constitution should be interpreted based on the concept of current times and political identities. Between the Lines Melinda Tuhu spoke with Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. He maintains that the concept of originalism was effectively debunked by U.S. Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson in reference to then-President Harry Truman's seizure of steel production facilities during the Korean War. 
Here, Professor Boyle explains how far-reaching the promoters of originalism are likely to go in turning back the clock on decades of precedence and settled law, reaching back to target FDR's New Deal and Warren Court rulings. Yes, I've pointed out that uh, what, what they want to do is undo and reverse uh, all the, uh, pretty much all the decisions by the uh, Warren Court, including Brown versus the Board of Education. Right. So they're, they're going to go back there at least, which would take us back to, you know, 1952-53. But Judge Lawrence Walsh pointed out that, in fact, they really want to undo the uh, Roosevelt Supreme Court uh, that upheld all the uh, progressive legislation that came out of the Roosevelt administration and, and the New Deal. So they really want to turn back the hands of time, at least to the Herbert Hoover Supreme Court. My point is that this is just the beginning, because we have to understand that except for uh, Clarence Thomas, who's about my age, the others, uh, the rest of them are in their 50s. So they'll be there for the next 30 years or so with more uh, than enough time to render decisions uh, undercutting, undermining all the Supreme Court decisions, progressive decisions. And by the way, the uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, that wasn't uh, a Warren court, that was uh, Justice Blackman, who was a, a Nixon appointee. So they, they want to roll back the hands of time, at least to the uh, late 20s, early 30s, before Franklin Roosevelt Supreme Court kicked in. As Justice Jackson correctly pointed out, they will pick and choose whatever uh, historical and legal precedents they want to obtain their ideological uh, objective and put it together uh, into a, a pastiche, basically a lawyer's brief. Uh, you know, if you read the legal opinion, it's not a, a you know, well-reasoned Supreme Court opinion. It's basically a lawyer's brief. So fine, there it is. It is bad news, but I think we have to understand what's going on here, that this has been a, a long-term uh, objective uh, going back to the beginning of the Reagan administration with the court packing by Reagan for eight years and Bush Sr. for four years. Bush Jr. for eight years, and then uh, Trump for four years, of these highly uh, ideological uh, federal society uh, lawyers and judges, so that today we have uh, six of them on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. What I'm saying then is that since the federal society lawyers and judges under all these uh, Republican administrations have been packing the Supreme Court and uh, the lower federal courts, we need counterpacking to redress these uh, imbalances because the life tenure for the Supreme Court is in the Constitution. Uh, it would require constitutional amendment, which is not going to happen. Impeachment, it, you know, I think only one Supreme Court justice has been impeached. Uh, that would require two-thirds vote in the Senate, which I doubt is going to happen. But counterpacking can happen. Uh, for example, I'm a political independent. I'm just, you know, speaking here as a legal scholar, but certainly if the Democrats can control the House and the Senate, they can increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court. And I think that's what's going to have to be done here. That was Francis Boyle, professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law.
Find more analysis and commentary on the dangerous agenda of the Supreme Court's supermajority of extremist justices by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the two and a half years of the coronavirus pandemic, more than one million Americans have died of the disease, the highest per capita death toll of any wealthy industrialized nation in the world. A recent study, led by Alison Galvani, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Modeling and Analysis at the Yale School of Public Health, concluded that had a universal healthcare system been in place in the U.S. during the pandemic, more than 338,000 COVID deaths could have been prevented. The study also found that $105.6 billion could have been saved in health care costs associated with pandemic hospitalizations if the U.S. had a system of universal health care insurance coverage. An estimated 30 million Americans currently have no health insurance. Your reporter spoke with Dr. James Kahn professor at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California at San Francisco and co-author of the study, who talks about the clear advantages of a universal health care model and the failings of the U.S. for-profit health care system that led to more than a quarter of a million needless deaths during the coronavirus pandemic. What we did is two steps. First is we, we did an empirical analysis. This was actually published in a separate paper that looked at COVID death rates um, in comparison with the percentage of the population that's uninsured. And what we found is that the, in, in areas with high levels of lack of insurance or uninsurance, there were more deaths. And if you adjusted and, and sort of did a model which said, well, what if all of these areas had 100% insurance coverage, it would have reduced the estimated deaths by 26%. And then in step two, we took that 26% and we applied it to the estimated number of deaths up to that point with COVID. And that's how we estimated more than 338,000 extra deaths because we don't have universal insurance. And um, the added COVID costs that we could have avoided are over $100 billion. But that's on top of about $400 billion that we could save every year, uh, pandemic or not, by having universal health insurance. And most of that is because we spend a lot of money, more than $600 billion a year, on unnecessary paperwork. Everyone experiences it, whether you're a provider or a patient, you know what that's about. And uh, between the insurers and the uh, doctor's offices and hospitals, uh, we are wasting more than half a trillion dollars a year in uh, unnecessary paperwork, which none of us likes anyway. Absolutely right. Uh, Dr. Khan, I I wanted you to uh, explore a bit for our listeners how our current health care system, our current for-profit healthcare system contributes to higher mortality rates for Americans uh, compared to other wealthy industrialized nations. 
and and I'm not just talking about the period of the pandemic these last uh, two and a half years, but but more generally. Um, I know the focus of this study concentrated on the pandemic, but the mortality rates for Americans are uh, w- way off from what we see in other industrialized nations. Am I right on that? You're absolutely right. And, and no matter how you cut it, no matter what statistic you look at, whether it's expected lifespan or number of deaths, if you compare our country to other countries in the world of wealthy countries, which we refer to as the OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's the wealthy countries in Europe, Asia, uh, around the world. Um, we stand out as paying 50% more or even twice as much as some countries on health care, but we have higher death rates and lower lifespans. And uh, the estimated number of deaths that uh, are added because people are uninsured is in the order of 60 to 70,000 by one method. By another method, it's over 150,000. So there are a lot of added deaths because people are uninsured. And then there are also lots of added deaths because people are underinsured. That is, they have big deductibles. And because of those big deductibles, they delay or skip seeking care. We don't have a good tally on that, but it adds substantially. So there are a lot more uh, deaths, and that's year in, year out. And uh, you are right. It it is related to the fact that our system is designed to maximize maximize profits rather than maximizing access to care. Uh, The health insurance companies are doing very well. Uh, year in, year out. And during the pandemic, they did especially well because even though people were getting sick with COVID, a lot of uh, discretionary or non-urgent care was postponed. And so the actual billings submitted by providers to the insurance companies decreased during the pandemic. And, And one of the most egregious problems with that is that the federal government was continuing to pay insurance companies to deliver uh, services under what's called Medicare Advantage. It's the privatized part of Medicare. The insurance companies continued to receive the money. They paid for fewer services because, as I said, you know, people weren't seeking non-urgent care. And the providers needed government bailouts to avoid going bankrupt. So essentially the government paid two times, once to the insurers and once to the providers, for care that was not received. This is really not the way to run a health care system. That was Dr. James Kahn, professor at the Institute for Health Policy Studies at the University of California at San Francisco. Find a link to the Universal Healthcare as Pandemic Preparedness study he co-authored and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org. 
where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, WLSL in St. Leo, Florida, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.